Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, here to discuss some nerdy fun, talking about the movie Blade with Alex and Dan today. Shing. Shing. All right, cool. One of my favorite movies. Woohoo. What I want to know is, when I say Blade, Alex, you say... Slick. Dan, you say... Fun. All right. So we are talking Blade today. And before we get started, I want to know what what is your personal history with Blade? Alex? I remember going to see this movie. I guess I had to have been in high school if it was 1998. But I remember seeing it twice because the first time I went to go see it, the projector broke five minutes from the end of the movie. I remember we got our money back. And then the next weekend, we drove to a different theater to go watch the whole thing and it's completely in its completion. But I just remember being just absolutely thrilled to see the movie and so frustrated that I missed the ending. Turns out I didn't really miss that much, but <laughs> I really liked that movie up until the last five minutes, which I'm sure we can talk to. <laughs> Dan? Like Alex, I saw this, I think when I was in college, uh, pretty sure it had to have been when it was released in theaters. And then I know I saw it another time because we watched it in someone's room at college, probably on VHS because at the time DVDs were just getting started and everybody still had VHS players. And I remember everybody really enjoyed this movie. So honest to goodness, Alex, I really think the first time I saw this was with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not kidding. Like I'm not surprised. I mean, like I had this movie on VHS and on DVD. Yeah, and I think you played it like every time people came over practically. It's wow, possible. a real aficionado there. Well, oh yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I really feel like you did though cuz I know I saw it at least a couple times with you. Blade was like life-changing for me. I I don't know what to say. It was it came out at the right time. It just, it made a big impression on me. Yeah. Yeah. And what, why do you think that is? Why do you think it made such a big impression on you? Well, stylistically, it's really slick. It's really like stylistically attractive. It's got Wesley Snipes in it. He's attractive, <laughs> but also it's a comic book movie in 1998 in a time where you just didn't have black superheroes. Mm -hmm. So for him to, for Wesley Snipes to portray Blade and to have a black superhero that was not someone's sidekick and he's competent and he's cool. And like the whole movie is nothing but him being cool. Mm -hmm. It's a silly movie. Like, I'm not going to say it's not, it's totally a silly movie, but to have a whole movie where he's just being cool, it just really resonated with me as yeah. a teenager. And the other thing that I really liked about it when I first saw it was that it's the first time you see a superhero movie where the focus is on darkness and it really feels like the grotesque and the dark is the emphasis 
And you not only have this strong black man who is the protagonist, you also have this emphasis on a fairly adult story. I really appreciated that as, you know, a college kid. It was the 90s. And by 1998, if memory serves, like, we'd already had, like, several vampire TV shows Mm-hmm. And movies that come out, they didn't exactly make the same splash that Blade. Right, did. I was I was going to touch on that uh, when I saw it, it. It made a big impression on me. I I loved the visual style of the movie. I thought the the actors really worked well together. I really enjoyed it because at the time this was long before vampires were sparkly. Uh, there was sort of a mini vampire boom in movies in the mid to late nineties. This was the time when you had things like uh, from dusk till dawn, mm-hmm. um, things like uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula had come out a little bit earlier interview yes. with a vampire. Yeah. Um, I think John Carpenter's vampires came out the same year. I and at the right time, yeah. yeah, I think it was 1998. Um, but at the time I was also, Interested in vampires, I think the year before, 1997, was the 100-year anniversary of the publishing of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So I actually read the entire book, uh, which I had never done before. I checked it out of our school library. And uh, I was also involved with uh, some groups that were into the White Wolf games that had the the whole vampire, the masquerade game uh, interest thing going on at the time. So, But I was interested in them as a, as a concept. I just really liked the way this movie incorporated vampires into a sort of um, punky urban fantasy setting and combined it with uh, with all those great action scenes we see in the movie. Totally ridiculous, and there's a lot of unbelievable stuff in there from just a pure physical standpoint, but it was uh, I found it very entertaining. Like, a lot of it, I think sort of presaged the movie um the matrix which came out the next year obviously it didn't have a lot of the innovative photography that the matrix did but it had sort of the same visual aesthetic and uh and dark noir feel to it that the matrix did Mm -hmm. it it sort of uh to me sort of encapsulates like that late 90s like look and feel of um of that type of dark action movie yeah, and the long black leather coat that Lawrence Fishburne wears in The Matrix does seem rather Blade-ish, I suppose. Which Thanks. is interesting, since he was one of the possibilities to be cast as the part of Blade in the movie Blade. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that there are only two other people, other than Wesley Snipes, that were even considered for this role. It was Denzel Washington, and then you have Lawrence Fishburne, and then you have Wesley Snipes. And okay, those are the only three possibilities for a strong black man in a superhero story you can come up with? Hollywood? Really? I don't know. What do, what do, you, what do you think about that, Alex? I think that you couldn't throw a rock at a sci-fi movie and have a black character in it and it not be Lawrence Fishburne at some point in the 90s. That's how I feel about it. Like, I mean, I'd have to go back and look, but I feel like he was, he carried a big load there for sci-fi movies and black representation. I mean, Wesley Snipes is a tough guy. Like, he came off of a string of action movies 
in the 90s. So I, I don't think that he was like a bad choice. The thing that always struck me as odd is how old he is when this movie comes out. Like, I think he's in his 40s already. And I know by the time they made Blade 3, one of the reasons why Blade 3 is written the way it is as like a ensemble cast is because he said, I'm too old to do these stunts. I can't keep up with these stunts. And I, you know, he's like, I, I need, you need to find a better way to write the story. I'm ready to step away from it. I can't do these stunts anymore. So it was kind of like interesting in 98 when this came out for them to pick him, because to me, it felt like this is a one-off movie because he's fairly vulnerable at that point. Like he's an older, you know, like in his, you know, forties type of actor, but it's just that like, I also get the feeling that the producers just couldn't think of three other black actors. Like, those are just the, the names that they can find. And I, I know that Hollywood is obsessed with the idea of what is bankable, but right. know, it's still like... Like, uh, would you bet on an unknown actor, especially in a black lead role? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I can see that. Yeah. And then the the other co-stars here are Stephen Dorff and, and Dubé Wright. For the Steven, Chris Christopherson. Oh, and Chris Christopherson, of course. But Blade started as a project that they were setting up for in 1992 with LL Cool J, and it ran into problems. And I'm really grateful it ran into problems because what we get with Wesley Snipes, no offense, LL Cool J, but I'm pretty sure... You know, having someone like Snipes who can do their own stunts and be a perfect badass in black leather is preferable, in my opinion. I don't know. Um, and later on, Snipes was trying to get a Black Panther film off the ground and into production, and nobody would back something with that title, um, specifically about the character Black Panther. He was the one who eventually came on board for a revamped version of Blade. So here's my question. So you've got Snipes who becomes Blade. If Deacon Frost had become Jet Li, who turned down the role of Deacon Frost for Lethal Weapon 4... How do you think that would have gone? Honestly, I from how the movie is set up with Blade's origin story, you know, his mom being pregnant with him, yeah. being bitten by a vampire. I don't think it would have had the same impact if that vampire had been an Asian man <laughs> over a white man. Like, I guess, yeah. like, just just the way I always viewed the movie is like, oh, of course, it's this white guy who did this to this black woman and took away your mother blade and made you what you are like sure jet lee would have been a great actor he's a great martial artist he would have been really entertaining better fight scenes probably but i think it just doesn't have that same like impact on the what other discourse you could have in the film mm-hmm. yeah and the the sort of racial consciousness of the film in terms of what's going on in terms of the social history there. Well, what about if it had been Mark Wahlberg? Dan, what do you think? Would it have been improved with Mark Wahlberg instead of Steven Dorff? I don't think so. I I don't... I, I mean, I can't imagine how that would be. I'm 
he'd probably do a good job, but Steven Dorff did a very good job with the character of Deacon Frost and making him kind of, he, he's like a really bad villain, but he's one that you can kind of understand where he's coming from. Like there's a little bit of depth to the character, not very much. Um, I mean, none of the characters in this movie have too much in the way of character depth, but I just love his characterization of Frost. He's, he does pretty, pretty spectacular in every single scene, as far as I'm concerned. I feel like I don't he know pulls how... off angsty white boy very, very well. Yeah, he, um, like, I, I pretty much like any interaction that he has with Udo Kier. Mm-hmm. Like, they actually have some pretty good on-screen chemistry, I think. I think he does a good job of portraying sort of like like the new money vampires or whatever they're supposed to be like the the newer the newer vampires who are the people who are are turned instead of born vampires I guess in their mythology. Yeah. If I remember right. correctly, like he has that sort of like I came up from nothing background and look what I've built for myself and I think I think Dan's right. He does a really good job of portraying that. I don't think that I mean Mark Wahlberg may have maybe could have done that but I think it works pretty well with Stephen Dorff. Like I, I would say that like I have a hard time thinking of better casting choices than what they ended up going with. It's possible that other people could have done as good a job, but I think I think they did a good job casting. And like like you said, there's that sort of new money and old money thing going on with them, but there's also a little bit of the the fervency of the of the newly converted versus the sclerotic dead wood of the organization all the old school born vampires don't really care about their vampire religion or the legends of this blood god la magra that they later get into in the movie but one of these turn vampires actually is very interested in it and is sort of critical of them for saying like you you know you're just sitting around resting on your laurels and afraid to take risks and here i am like a true believer in vampire supremacy and I'm going to put this into action and I'm going to do it by going straight through you. It's an interesting dichotomy and it's interesting because like in uh, a lot of vampire TV shows that you get uh, around this time and after this time, like you definitely see the influence that Blade had and even on shows that predated Blade, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like that whole ritual that there is at the end is something that they include in the season two finale, basically. Oh, right. with the master. Right, I, well, I well, forgot no, about where that. Angel's blood has to activate a Kothla to to bring oh, in the yeah. apocalypse, and so it has to be the vampire with the soul, with the soul who, like, you know, with the sad, also sad puppy dog to bring it up because it's it's going to come up sooner or later. Um, a um a property that was influenced by Blade that I don't think is nearly as good, but does have sort of the same themes going on as far as uh, the old guard versus the usurpers and the use of blood magic. Uh, that would be um, Underworld, which I think came out about five years after uh, Blade. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, Underworld 2. Also True Blood uh, definitely incorporates a lot of the same ideas that are in there with the other vampires versus the authority who are supposed to invoke Lilith 
the vampire, you know, goddess creature thing. And you also have the defanging thing. That whole scene where Steven Dwarf is defanging Udo Kier on the beach. Like, that's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I don't know why I love it so much. I mean, the effects are really, really cheesy. It shouldn't, it shouldn't <laughs> right. land with me, but it does for some reason. A lot of the, but, well, on that note, a lot of the a lot of the CGI effects in the movie that look pretty good in 1998 today look a little bit cheesy. Yeah. Uh, they haven't aged particularly well, but they, I didn't think they looked terrible. I just rewatched the movie recently in preparation for the podcast. And I noticed and like, Oh, well that, that looks like something from the mid to late nineties, but it didn't look awful. To be honest, a lot of it looked worse when I was living in the 90s and 2000s than it does now. I don't know. Well, now you you put on like a, you you know you're going to watch this movie and you go, okay, it's the 90s. So you kind of dial back your expectations. And for me, like the special effects in that movie were fine until you get to that final fight when oh Stephen Dor- Deacon Frost becomes La Magra. Yeah. And I'm like, he, he looks like a bunch of grapes. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. At the end where right. like, you know, like he gets with all the serum or whatever it was. And now he looks like a like a bunch of grapes. Like before he explodes, that, I was like, what the hell is this? That like, infamous scene where he cuts him in half with the sword and part of his his upper part of his body flies upwards. And there's this stream <laughs> of what's supposed to be blood and guts, but looks kind of like what Alex said, like bunches of shiny grapes. And yeah. then the top part of his body flies back and reconnects with the lower half uh, because he's now the living incarnation of this this blood god. Well, he gets all like the the antidotes or whatever stuck in him, and he starts bulging all over. That scene's also funny to me because it has the um that shot of Wesley Snipes looking backwards and then mouthing but not saying so they could get this past the censors. You know what oh, the f. Yes, I remember that. Like you can read his lips very easily there, but there's no audio. I I just I it's either cheesy or really funny, and it just juxtaposed with the with the reconstituting vampire um, that you just saw in the last scene. It's it makes for a funny um, it makes for a funny uh, scene there. But that was what was also kind of fun about the movie is you've got like. Wesley Snipes playing Blade and he's like like the absolute like uh, not like a straight character but like there's so many interactions that he has where he's just like so serious yeah <laughs> and straight face it like and there's like all these like little like uh the sword his sword that he carries and like you know like there's this little switch you have to flick or it explodes your hand you know, and like, there's like, I know there's like, that. Yeah, the the Blade character doesn't joke around. I'm trying to think of like jokes he makes in the movie. The one about the March of Dimes is the only one I can think of about the. Time yeah, of but my he head. still oh. delivers the line like really kind of seriously, um, which I think is it's fun to compare this with the way that Marvel superheroes act today in the MCU movies where. They're joking around constantly. Even the ones that aren't that funny make jokes. Blade doesn't really make that many. He no. pretty much plays it straight. And 
most of the humor that exists in this movie comes from some of the um some of the characters that pretty much exist just to be like the butt of jokes like that yeah. one guy who keeps getting his arms chopped off that's right yeah 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 donald logue oh my god i love donald logue he he was but, on gotham too i don't know but blade is so much fun because he's just like he's all about style he's got his sword he's got his his coat like everything he wears is like clearly crafted for the role it's kind of like all right like so much i feel effort. like his, his the script is pretty good and he does a good job of turning that script into blade mm-hmm. i mean even down to his haircut yeah. which like is distinctly like i don't know to me like a very black thing that he's got this, like, I mean, like, that's a high maintenance haircut, guys. Like, is that the fa- yeah. did he have a fade haircut? I'm forgetting. He had a fade, but like towards the back, it's like wasn't it like a- carved in, kind of like with little designs or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's not something. That's something you get done like every like week or two weeks. That's not like a, you know, you do that once a, you know, every six months. That's a high maintenance haircut. So it's like this by having a haircut like that in the movie you're you're stating that blade really cares about his maybe appearance. he had whistler do it for him maybe i mean like whistler as the surrogate parent that would be an interesting choice like oh by the way can you can you do my fade in the back and make sure if my points are sharp like <laughs> <laughs> can you make sure my line is straight like- yeah like it's that that's there's a lot going on in that character and it's just very interesting, especially because like the rest of the franchise is kind of garbage. Yeah. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I own all three of the movies on DVD and I definitely watched the TV show. I think I've seen the second one once. I don't think I've seen the third blade. The third blade, like the second one is okay. The third one is clearly like, like I said, it's an attempt to pass the torch because Wesley Snipes is like, Hey, I'm too old for this. Ryan Reynolds is in it. And I want to say Jessica Alba. Yeah, and then Patton Oswald is in it. Yeah. And there's somebody else, but they're supposed to be like this like new group of people who's gonna come in and work with Blade and then take over the the fight of fighting vampires. And that clearly didn't work out. And they sort of like abandon it. Like the the ser- the uh, movie series. But I don't I don't know how that would even work for me. I I kind of can't hear Ryan Reynolds now without hear, without thinking of Deadpool, no matter what he does. Well, you can consider his role in that movie sort of like proto Deadpool. Deadpool. Yeah, like he's yeah. he's the snarky, like wisecracking, like ex vampire, I guess. Oh, and don't forget about the vampire Pomeranian too. <gasps> That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was very special. Obviously. Obviously, dear to our hearts. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's kind of funny that Marvel eventually did stumble upon a formula that really worked well. <laughs> because they actually put out a lot of mediocre movies for years before they, they came upon what later became termed the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Blade's whole hideout is 
really a former Redken shampoo factory. Having Chris Christopherson and Wesley Snipes in that space, what did you guys think of two dudes who were known for doing their own stunt work kind of as the mentor-mentee relationship? Because Chris Christopherson um, actually worked as a stuntman for a while um, before starting to do actual acting work. I don't know if you guys knew that, but I knew about it. I mean, I don't think I did. I guess in regards to the factory that just, I feel like by 1998, so many of these types of like, cause I see in your notes, you mentioned Highlander. So many of these types of things, like, of course they have like a hangout in a, a warehouse or some old building. Like that just seems like to come with the territory. It's like, if this was like Blade, the role playing game, you you know you got to roll up your hideout or whatever. So, you know, warehouses are cheap. Yeah, it's not like you have enough points to get the penthouse apartment. As right. like I said, as Blade says, this isn't the fucking March of Dimes. <laughs> you know, as he takes some dude's Rolex or something like they yeah. they're supposed they're meant to be living on the edge of society doing this mission. It's like. It's something, you know, you mentioned sort of how it Blade influences other things. It's something that comes up in that TV show Supernatural a lot, how they exist on the, you know, they're supposed to exist on the edge of of society. You know, they live in, they sleep in crappy motels and, you know, live in a bunker. And it's like, I feel like that's the same kind of thing that you're seeing here in Blade is that they live in this old warehouse. They, they drive a classic muscle car. You know, like, they spend a lot of money on their clothes. They always have nice threads. Right. I, but they live on the edge of society. They don't get paid for what they do. Mm-hmm. You brought up the car. That that just reminded me of something that I didn't really think of when I saw this movie. I was probably 20 when it came out. The character Blade makes no real attempt to be low-key at all. He drives around in this very noticeable car in very dangerous ways through a crowded city. Nothing happens to him. Uh, or that scene where he's beating the daylights out of that cop in, in the middle in of the a middle crowded of city street and no one is reacting. In the broad daylight. Yeah, it was I'm yeah. kind of like, it's not even happening in a back alley. He's doing this right out on the street. Um. But but just to go back to the warehouse for a second, I thought it was a. It just seemed to be a continuation of the of the cinematic trope of underworld organizations. For some reason, their natural habitat is abandoned warehouses. I'm sure there's some basis for that somewhere, but it it did seem to be a fun example of that. It's like, of course they. Of course, they set up uh, their vampire hunting base in the middle of this abandoned warehouse in this rather anonymous American city, which mainly seems to be New York, but has some elements of L.A. and Chicago, too, from what I was seeing in some of the shots. It was it was fun. Like uh, it was kind of like they're kind of a little bit like Alfred and Batman of of the 90s, where they have this bat cave, except this is their vampire hunter cave. I, I liked their little hideout. Uh, I liked the way that Whistler was kind of this welding handyman who was 
making all these things. I mean, you could also say their relationship was a little bit like a little bit like Q and James Bond, but you know, obviously a lot more um a lot more close and like a father son type thing than the relationship that those two characters had, which was a lot more professional. It was a little bit unbelievable that uh the vampires hadn't discovered this yet. <laughs> yeah. uh they did say they were always on the move like they were moving from city to city so maybe they just hadn't found it in this city yet but uh when when frost and his lackey show up at the warehouse later in the movie uh they're like oh it took us a while to find the place i'm saying i i would say that it did especially since blade is kind of the vampires no matter no matter if you're old the old money vampires or the new money vampires he's kind of the vampires enemy number one it's a little bit unbelievable they didn't locate this place before that, since according to Blade, they have their hands and everything, the police, the government, it's all kind of vampire compromised. You know, one of the things I always thought about, and I don't know if it was just me reading too much into the movie, is that maybe the vampires did know where they were, but for the most part, he was such, he's either that he was too much of a threat to deal with head on until they had this, like, work around of like the, the day walking cream and finding La Magra or whatever, but like, or that they just didn't bother. Like he's like the old money vampires don't really seem to be as unnerved in some ways. And maybe they just thought, okay, well he's, he's out there, but like what, what harm can this one guy do? It seemed like they regarded him as more of a nuisance. Yeah. Whereas Frost didn't Frost had a real interest in blade either as a threat or, you know, once he found out that he needed Blade's blood for the ritual, you know, he needed, he knew he needed to take him alive. Right. Like, it's just sort of like, you're a nuisance, you know, sure, you kill a few of us, but there's so many of us, and suddenly, yes, oh, wait, we need your blood, or, I, I don't think that the people who wrote the movie were thinking that far ahead in terms of anything else that they could have done with the character. I will say that, like, the whole idea of him being in this like warehouse setup, he's always on the move is sort of interesting in that at the same time, like it's the nineties blades, this sort of like distant gruff character. Who's not, you know, he's, he's not really attached to anyone. You've got him. He's always on the move and he's living in this warehouse. And it's the nineties when like you said earlier, you got interview with the vampire vampires suddenly have feelings like, they're some of them are nice people you know like and you've got him like it's it's an interesting uh juxtaposition or something where you've got blade and say buffy the vampire slayer vampires are bad and they're evil and we hunt them and then you've got this other line where like they're nice people and they have feelings and you know maybe it's not so bad vampire the masquerade they, they had a tv right show. well i think that i mean every Everyone who comes out with vampires in fiction always makes an attempt to uniquely, uniquely brand them. Um, you know, almost to the point now where it's an accepted thing that whenever you're you're looking at a new vampire property, they're going to explain to you how vampires really work at the <laughs> beginning or somewhere in the middle. It's like you might have heard stories about this, this, or that, but this is how this is the real deal on vampires. And that's that's gone back a long way in, in vampire fiction. I mean, arguably Dracula, which which created a lot of vampire tropes, was sort of 
recreating the idea of vampires even way back in the 1890s. Well, that's a good point, too, because Blade being the daywalker, he's the only one who can walk around in the daytime. And like you said, like, what, 10 years later, there's sparkly daytime vampires on Twilight. Yeah. Uh, there's that TV show on CBS called Moonlight. They could walk around the daylight. Well, you actually brought leave. up something I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about him being a half vampire or whatever you want to call it, a, a dompier. And there the is this right. There's this very old trope, and I I won't pretend to know where it started about like the best vampire hunters are half vampire or full vampire themselves. Right. I think doesn't one of the many incarnations that use Hel- that uses helsing i think also right i yeah. think that, that i'm not sure what the trope originator was on that but, but you might gonna, be right i was gonna say is that like you you've got like blade on one end of the spectrum is like i'm hunting vampires i'm a daywalker i'm i'm half in that world and i was thinking of more modern tv shows like uh vampire diaries where mm-hmm. yep we're, we're horrible vampires and you know some of us are nice and evil but Hey, we all happen to have magic rings that just let us walk walk around the daylight because the studio can't be bothered to film at night. So, <laughs> right, and right. one of them has to go to high school. So, uh, magic daylight rings, here we come! Like, hadn't they I, ever heard of the wonderful world of blue filter night? Oh no, they they do a lot of blue filter night, but it's just funny because it's just like like you said at the beginning of the series, especially now that they've had like they're on their second spinoff. Every vampire, it's like the little vampire welcome kit comes with a daylight ring. And you just pop <laughs> that course. sucker on and... Welcome can, to being a vampire. Yeah, it continue on to high school. And it's like, the way we treat vampires now is that they're just part of society. Like, you know, like, you can think... I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But, like, you can almost think the way people... Some people have used vampirism to view, like, the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. and say like okay you know this is you know life with aids so you just you just live with it now it's not so bad you get on with your life and like you have that end of the spectrum where it's just a, a new part of your life and you have blade where it's like i kill vampires they took my mother yeah. i kill them and it's just this interesting like blade tries to humanize vampires but they're all still bad yeah. and there's people by blade three you have people who used to be vampires and clearly the state that you know in the blade universe the state that you desire is to not be a vampire because vampires are bad and evil no one's sitting around going like hey but you know living forever is not so bad <laughs> like right it's like no vampires bad evil drinking blood but now nowadays it's oh yeah live forever just you know no pulse no i'm not really familiar with the with the sequels to blade um but in the original blade at any rate i can't think of any good vampires they're all bad yeah there aren't like it's not maybe there are some good ones but blade doesn't seem to think they're any good yeah and it's interesting because i've been reading this comic book series called bitter root it actually just won the eisner award um for best continuing uh comic book series and it is a phenomenal series but it treats um you know it, it centers on another kind of mystical creature that's not a vampire, but it treats them in kind of the same way that Blade does, um, where it sort of feels like vampirism is a metaphor for white supremacy in some ways in Blade. And in 
um, bitter root it is too, because you have um, black people who have turned into these monsters called Janu because of the results of white supremacy and um, the events like the Tulsa massacre. And it's, it's a very interesting kind of take on the horror genre and looking at um, some of these same ideas of vampirism as metaphor, but addressing bigger issues related to white supremacy and racism and so forth is something that I think Blade started, um, as far as I can tell, maybe even in the comic books. I don't know. Dan, you're more familiar with the comic books. I think that uh, that was that might have been an undercurrent in the comics. I I mainly just remember that the the characters of of uh, Frost and Blade are are made to be kind of younger and hipper than they were in the comics. Uh, also, they were Blade is supposed to be a lot closer to the age he appears in um in the movie than he is in the comic, where he was actually born in the twenties, but ages uh, I think a bit slower. Uh, in in the movie Blade, he's just um, his apparent age. He's about you know thirty five, forty years old. Yeah, in the movie, he's supposed to be like I think I keep thinking forty two or something like that. But yeah, he's in his like late thirties, forties. Because there's this whole scene where he's talking to his mother, and his mother's saying, you know, if we turn you into a full vampire you know, you won't age anymore. You won't have any aches and pains. You know, you're going to get older. And he goes like, no, I don't, I don't want that. He, he rejects like the, the full vampire package as it were. I also remember like, I know you guys probably didn't see the blade TV show, but I know in the blade TV show. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're better off not <laughs> watching that. Uh, I, I never saw it. It was on Spike TV, and yeah, like I, there's like I said, there's a there's so few properties that you can watch if you're looking for that kind of thing, like any kind of representation, even in the early 2000s. So mm-hmm. I watched it, and even in the show, like he's, I think he's portrayed as even younger. Like he's the actor is certainly younger. I can't remember his name, but it's like some it's who someone who used to be a rapper turned actor. He's younger than Wesley Snipes, um, and he's sort of portrayed as like having having more going on, and yet somehow in a thirteen episode TV series, he has less going on because the way the show's written is that it revolves around all the characters but him. He kind of comes in and he does his thing, but really, like they just never find a good way to characterize Blade outside the movies. I never read the comic book, but definitely the TV show, they never find a really good way to have him be relatable to people. His, his navel into that world is the cop who gets turned into a vampire and like, was supposed to be working undercover with him or something like that to break up a different ring of vampires or something like that. Hmm. I also noticed like you, you mentioned earlier, um, true blood. Yeah, and the the defanging of vampires, like so you you were talking about that scene on the beach where yeah where it's like 
I thought about that. Why would you bother pulling out someone's fangs if you're going to like let them be roasted in the sun anyway? But it's really to like disrespect just, them. Yeah, it, it's just another way of disrespecting them and of sort of torturing them in that last moment. But in True Blood, it's very interesting because like I remember the vampires when they want to commit suicide, they're going to go greet the sun, right? They're yeah. going to yeah. go outside and, and greet the sun and I think it's interesting. I'm not sure if if that's the first place that happens or if that, you know, Blade is the first place that happens, but just this added this idea that they do have a separate culture. It's not just lurking in the shadows, that they might have beliefs. It's interesting that you see it in Blade and then it comes up again, like you said, with the authority and everyone in True Blood. Yeah. I always just saw um Frost's removal of of his teeth as um just a way to dramatically show like, like it, like the way it's almost like an in-universe reflection of like the out of universe storytelling, like obviously out of universe, like that was done to just be a dramatic way for him to show the other elder vampires that he had killed him. Uh, But I think that like, you could also just see that as functioning in universe as well. It's like, Oh, I'll rip out his fangs and then it'll look really cool when I toss him across the table. Which it did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like you do. Oh, as opposed to like, ew, he had terrible dental work. (laughs) But maybe like, but if you think about it, if you are a vampire and you get staked or burnt by the sun and you turn into ash, taking out someone's fangs might be the only way you can prove that they're really dead because otherwise it's just your word that's true against you're just gonna bring a pile of ashes in and dump those on the table i'm not sure how much proof they required i mean (laughs) like he could have just gotten some other teeth and done that Um, oh maybe they can dna test them or lick them or whatever that that would be one way yeah it'd be it'd be incontrovertible proof that he had had him killed but he also had witnesses that it's like yeah we we took um we took him out to the beach and had him greet the morning sun and now he's dead and now I'm in charge. Well, maybe like, you know, his family would really know his fangs. They'd go, oh, yes, those are fangs from someone that's from possible. our, it's, our that's clan. That's how they identify right, each other. they totally, like, examine other people's fangs all the time. I don't know. Okay. Well, you figure there's probably different styles of fangs or something. I and mean, that's like, you, we're getting way into, like... Wow. Vampire theology. I've definitely seen some different fangs over the years, having watched well, vampire that is movies. True. That is true. That is true. And and yeah, you get different wrinkly foreheads and different, you know. The Gur face. The Gur face. From, from Buffy. That's what they yeah. used to call it. Like that's right. Not that's all right. vampires get not all vampires get their like ugly gur non human yeah. faces. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, you've got, like, when they went to Angel, and for that first season, they had, like, the kabuki mask makeup, you know, yeah, yes. vampires. That was pretty interesting, but yeah. Even, like, with them just being so pale, or just, like... No, the actual makeup for when they went into vampire mode was, like, uh, kind of bulky, yeah. And um, not so detailed. 
And yes, they it got more refined as the yeah. the budget went up. Clearly divine, yeah. designed for um, SD TVs before the 10, 1080p revolution. Mm, well, that and the I think it was because they were ordered to see a half season. And okay. They weren't really sure, like, how I never saw Angel the show. I mean, like in the original Buffy show, like, but I mean, like that was a thirteen episode order for the first season. And I don't think they had a huge budget. So I imagine like they needed some time to refine their, their vampire makeup. But I do remember that the point was, is that when the characters embraced their vampire nature, it was that they lost all their humanity and thus became demonically evil, like ugly. Mm-hmm. You don't really get that much in blade. If I remember they're no. just fangs come out. No, like, yeah. they, they just have fangs. Just fangs. That's all. They're just pale and they have fangs, and that's a. I mean, there's there's that one, too. the like, really, there's the really kind of fat, obese, the job of the semi bestial uh, yes. one who's just sort of sitting there, like at his computer, like kind of like a weird take on maybe overweight nerds who spend too much time in front of their computers. That's what I took away in 1998 when I saw it. It's like, oh, I get it clever yeah but i I mean he's like but i i think i brought him up because he's like one of the more vampire looking vampires in this movie most of the other ones don't have features like that um the only like sort of more monstrous features you see is a little bit in frost after he becomes la magra at the end where he actually gets the yeah he gets an interesting take on red eyes which you don't (laughs) often see for monsters like Normally, like the the old trope was, monsters have red, red corneas or red pupils or both, and now horror has gone to the whole like jet black oily eyes for monsters. Whereas he actually has like his his corneas are the color they were, but I think like the sclera of his eyes goes from white to red, which is something I don't see much, which I thought was was interesting and fun from a visual standpoint. But like like you were saying, like most of what you see in this movie for vampires displaying vampire traits is just fangs, which is fine. It, it I think it works well for the the in world in universe um, building of what how vampires work. It works well. I like I wouldn't debate that. But I guess I guess for me, I'm thinking about how we just keep moving towards the pretty sparkly vampires, and the only you've got Blade, which is sort of like not particularly like there's no ugly vampires except for Pearl. Everyone is normal looking right. or, or gorgeous I, or gorgeous. I, I feel like there's, there's always that back and forth with vampires in fiction, like the attempts to humanize them or make them more appealing. And then the attempts to say, no, like let, let's wait a second. They're just monsters. Like I think, um, I think there was some, there were some lines in that in, in uh, John Carpenter's vampires about how, don't romanticize them like they're they're just bad news right mm-hmm. yeah and then of course you're going to get pushback it's like no actually they're just misunderstood like protagonists that you need to get to know better and they can even play <laughs> baseball really well oh yay oh yay that's well, like if anyone ever made like the omega man the way not the omega man i am legend I am oh, yeah, legend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They ever made a movie the way the book is written. I think there's, there is a version 
well, they make it? Yeah, I've seen the Vincent Price version um, that was filmed in Italy, actually. And then I watched the Will Smith version just recently. I've seen the Omega Man, and I've seen the Will Smith one. I think there's one with uh, Mark Dacascus, the mm. guy from Iron Chef. I haven't seen The that. chairman. And I, I've heard that one's very faithful to, like, they're, they're vampires instead of zombies. and mm. but, but, I mean, the the reason why I think about that one is, is that, like, in that one, the vampires are the normal people. The human is the guy who's not normal anymore. He's killing them all in their sleep. But they're the normal people. They're not described as being pretty or ugly. They're just people. And it always seems like in a lot of the vampire stories now, vampires are just people. Like, you know, like if you've ever seen the movie, uh, My Best Friend is a Vampire. Mm-mm. It's an 80s movie. It's great. Oh. It's, it's, I love this movie. And one of the things that they do in this movie is like, again, very far off from Blade. It's a, it's a teenage boy. He he ends up being turned into a vampire and he gets like a vampire mentor who coaches him through like life, his first year is life as a vampire. And he, he, he figures out ways to live with it. And he's a day, he could come out in the daytime. He's a day walking vampire. Like he's just going to age really slowly. It's like all these decent perks to being a vampire, but it really humanizes vampirism. It's just something he lives with. And his parents think he has AIDS. It's like 1985 or 86, but his parents literally think he has HIV or AIDS. And this the whole this whole idea, like, okay, he's trying to live with it. His parents are like, I don't know what's going on. But it's it's very different than how vampirism is portrayed in Blade, where it's like it's this horrible thing, kill them all. Here's this kid just trying to live with it. And so it's this when I think about like sort of where you've come from, like where like I said, like vampire movies on a spectrum, Blade is like kill them all. This guy's like, <clears throat> live with it. It's not so bad. And then you've got Blade being this daywalker, which should be like the way it is treated in Blade. It's a rare trait. Like vampires don't come out of the day. That seems to be like a thing that should be. And yet you have all these other movies where they're just walking around. And so right, right. it's interesting that in 1998 in Blade, it's, hey, he's the daywalker. It's a big deal. They treat it like a big deal. But since then, like, to the all the movies since then it's just like oh yeah we take that for granted they all just come out yeah. right. it's fine and like blade almost feels like it's a movie from like we're like what we're 22 years divorced from when that movie came out and it really feels like a different time for vampire movies since we brought up uh the humanization of vampires i think i'd probably be remiss if i didn't mention a movie which came out a while ago and a TV show that is coming out now that was introduced to me partially by uh, a couple friends of mine, but I'll drop his name on here. Uh, Chris Russo. Uh, it's actually one of his favorite things that's currently being put out. Uh, it's called uh, what we do in the shadows, I think oh, is the yeah, title. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I just thought I would name drop that. And I, I liked the movie and I like the new show that's uh, that's being released right now. It's it's just a lot of fun, and it plays with a lot of the um, the world building that vampires get in different different movies and television shows. It has a lot of fun fun lines in there. Like I'm gonna butcher this one. I'm sure fans will hate me for this, but it has a character who said I was fascinated by her, and she just says I use my fascination power on him. <laughs> 
it has a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff going on like that. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Cool. Cool. I saw the movie um, by Taika Waititi, but I never actually saw the TV show. Right. I, I I didn't realize this, but originally he had planned it on planned on it being a uh, a TV show, but for whatever reason, it ended up being a movie. Maybe that was the only way it could get made, but he uh, or people he's working with are putting out a television show, which was the original idea behind the concept. Hmm. Yeah, I think the show is like in, they just finished their second season yeah. a few months ago yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I still haven't watched it yet. I've, it's been on my queue on Hulu for a long time, but no. But it, it is an interesting one in that it, you know, plays with the mythology and where different parts of the vampire mythology come from. His mother is still alive and she's concealed in that coffin like bed that just comes apart. Um, and, and just the, the very sexual, uh, imagery between his mother and him in those sequences that feel incestuous right before he kills his mother. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting about him finding his mom, hmm. was like that, that scene it's it's like, you know, he's there, he's running through like the hideout, he's fighting or whatever it is. And then he, like you said, the coffin opens up and it's, it's his mom. And of course, like my first thought was like, how does he remember his mom? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. why is that a thing? He's remembering his mom. He's and Who you died, know, it's, right as it's weird born. that that he remembers her and that yes. she would know who he is. Right. Like they both shouldn't know who the other one is at all. But OK, maybe, maybe they can smell each other. You know, maybe like, there's some vampire thing going on. But yeah, he was he he wasn't born yet and she died before he was. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you know, yeah. she delivered him post-turning or whatever, like, and apparently just, I think he just, she, he's abandoned, so it's kind of odd that it's like, oh, Eric, my baby. Oh, hi, Mom. And it's like this weird moment, and it's sort of like, it's a dramatic moment and that, you know, she's there and somehow they recognize each other and I she's they, offering him all these things, but it's just very odd and that like how they chose to portray it. It's a good shock moment. Like I can remember being in the theater and I'm going to be like, Oh, it's his mom. Like did Frost plan this to happen or did, was this just serendipity that like he was distracted for a second, which allowed Frost and his goons to burst into the room and start zapping him with tasers or whatever those were. I, like, I don't like think it was, was planned. planned. I think it just kind of happened. See, I always felt like it was planned because, like, he's had your mom for like thirty plus years. Like, they've been together. She's been in your, his like vampire lady harem or whatever for thirty thirty five years. I feel like at some point he may have figured out. Like, okay. Oh yeah, maybe maybe. I mean, this I could is see it kid. being planned. I could see it just being something that happened too. Like maybe Blade wouldn't have come into that room. You know? Right. It's a little too perfect to be something that would Frost had planned because he doesn't seem to be the best at planning for things like that. True, but it just it just like he continuously underestimates Blade. Like the line about it's just one guy. What's he gonna do? And then he comes <laughs> in on a motorcycle and starts blowing away everyone with automatic weapons and whips out a couple swords. I mean, Frost should have known he was gonna do that. 
Slade has a penchant for doing things like that. True. Because Blade is a badass. Yes. So I think we're all at least agreed on that point, right? Yeah, I I think, well, yeah, he's a badass. I just wanted to say, I think they might have rushed the whole scene with a mother and not building up enough to that as far as explaining how they, and let maybe Frost told her <laughs> who Blade was. That That's the only <laughs> thing that makes sense to me. Um, because I know that they wanted to cut this movie down in length. Uh, I was surprised when I rewatched it. It's two hours long. I'm like, that's pretty long for a, uh, for an action movie from that time period. Yeah. Most of them were only about an hour and a half. And I think the original director's cut of this was about two and a half hours. And I can see where audiences of the time would not be primed for a movie that long. So maybe they wanted to move things along a bit. Yeah. yeah and it definitely, I, I think you're right. Cause it doesn't you the mother is not a sympathetic character like i mean sure i mean the best thing you could say is maybe she's developed some sort of stockholm syndrome over the past three decades yeah but i mean if she didn't know he was alive i could believe that like that she just didn't know oh i didn't know you were alive but then when she she clearly recognizes him it just seems very like because uh, I think they even say like, "Oh, I, she's like, I didn't know you were alive, but hey, I know, I know that face." Never mentions his father, any of those things. But like you said, some of that could have been cut for time. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Yeah, no problem. Always glad to be on. Oh my god, Ariel, you got to be ready for my internal filter to come off about this uh, city we became book. Oh good. Oh right. Good, good, good. I yeah. Can't wait. I have. I can't wait. I have words. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm going to have my friend Brian join us on that podcast because he actually lives in Brooklyn and oh, okay. you know, knows a lot about the geography of New York in general and can speak to like the characterization of all of the different you know, <laughs> boroughs of New York, American God style. B- both Ben and I, our moms are both from New York City. Oh, yeah. So we've been we've been having I'm reading it, but he has to listen to me like go, OK, wait, she just said what? Ben, I'm telling he's just like, oh, my God, like it's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you with that teaser for our next episode focused on N.K. Jemison's new sci fi novel, The City We Became. Thanks so much for listening. We are at Omnibus Ride on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love it if you could give us a rate and review on iTunes or Podchaser, since it's one of the few ways we can spread the word about our show. In the meantime, be safe, be well. (laughs) 